Awesome. Well, welcome. Grab a seat. Uh, if we haven't met yet, my name's Jeff Parker. I'm the director of pastoral care here at the Plano campus. And uh, it is good to be in this room with you all tonight. This is uh, a room that's near and dear to me. Uh, back uh, about three and a half, four years ago, director of pastoral care included re-engage. And so I got to run in this room for a couple of years, and uh, by the grace of God, for all parties, including you all, uh, a guy named Drew Gio came along and, and kind of relieved me of my services here, and it's been good for everyone, trust me. Uh, Drew, and he a great leader, uh, and so grateful for the ways that uh, he leads this ministry. Clap for Drew, for sure. And, uh, and so it's been good for me, too, because I'm also at Regeneration on Tuesday nights, and the back-to-back nights were just hard on my family. Uh, but it doesn't mean I don't miss being here. Uh, you don't do something for a couple of years and not have your heart tethered to it. And so just know on, on Monday nights uh, when I'm leaving and some of y'all are coming in, my heart's praying for, for this night uh, because I know um, some of the stories coming in here. Uh, my wife and I also led a group while we were here. And uh, it's just, I know it's hard work and yet it's good work that you all are doing. And so I'm so encouraged by you all. Um, I, I can tell you this, um, there is, uh, as much as I can say this in a positive way, uh, again, knowing that uh, I was doing both Monday and Tuesday night, there's no regrets um, that Drew has come along and been able to take this ministry to a completely different level and uh, how he cares for you all and your leaders. Uh, but I do want to talk about some regrets tonight, and there's a famous regret in my household about a time that um, I went to a, a Rangers game. So this would have been, man, probably 15 years ago at this point that um, I was at a Rangers game or, or me and a couple buddies were trying to figure out how to go to a Rangers game on a budget. We, only, we didn't have a lot of money and sporting events are expensive these days, right? And the food there is expensive. And so we were investigating kind of different cheap options and we found, um, which it's crazy at this point, it's now the old ballpark in Arlington, which is kind of crazy. But uh, back in 2006, 2007, uh, the home run porch, the right field area, the second deck was all you could eat seats. For 15 bucks, you got a ticket to the game and you got to eat all the hot dogs, popcorn, nachos, ice cream, peanuts, soda you could possibly want. It's an amazing deal, right? And so my friends and I were about to book tickets uh, for this game when we noticed that if we waited just one more week, the Blue Jays were coming into town and there was going to be a doubleheader and that the all-you-can-eat seats were still just 15 bucks for both games. So this sounded amazing. We're kind of thinking, man, we're about to rip off the Texas Rangers. We're going to get two games and we're going to get 10 hours of ballpark buffet. What more could you want? So we show up, we're high-fiving people in line. We get there two hours early because you want to maximize your time in the buffet line, right? And so we just run through the buffet line. My first time through, I get three hot dogs, a plate of nachos, a cup full of soda, make sure I've got some peanuts ready for when I'm done. And I mean, every 30 minutes, I'm just taking another lap through the buffet line. The game hasn't even started, and I'm starting to regret some of the decisions I've made, right? I mean, you're starting to literally feel some of the decisions. But that's okay. You shove it away, and you get back through the buffet line, right? That's what you do. You got 10 hours. I've only taken advantage of two. So I just keep going every two or three innings round through the buffet line. The first game ends, and I am, um, thankfully, there weren't a lot of people at this uh, doubleheader, so I'm sprawled out on the upper deck seats. I mean, I hope no cameras were finding me, uh, but I mean, just, you know, there's those armrests, and I'm like curled around it, just, just laying down, face down, uh, and just miserable. The game, game two starts, I'm, I can't even watch a pitch, and yet about the third inning, a thought hits me, wait, 
if I don't get up and get back through the buffet line, I'm going to miss out. I came here because you get game two for free. It was thrown in. I got to take advantage of it. And so I stand up and I'm kind of steadying myself, right? I've got the, it's hot there, but I don't think that's why I'm sweating. I think the food's causing it. So I kind of steady myself. I make it to the buffet line. I grab two more hot dogs. Why two at this point? It's just sheer arrogance. And uh, add a little plate of nachos, refill that soda cup, head back to my um, chair. And I literally get, I don't know, maybe halfway through that first hot dog. And, uh, and let's just say it didn't go well for me. Didn't go well for anyone around me. Um, and I missed the next four days of work. Um, so this is a famous regret in my household. Uh, one that, uh, you know, things are not always what they see, right? Beware of the bargain. And, uh, and it's funny, we laugh, right? And, and we laugh because this isn't as that serious. You might even have a similar story uh, of, of regret where you're like, hey, I kind of felt the pain. I could see it coming, and yet I powered right on through. And sure enough, there was a greater pain waiting. Um, scripture says this in 2 Corinthians 7.10, that there is a sorrow according to the will of God, and it produces repentance without regret. And it leads to salvation. And in that context, it leads to becoming more like Christ. That's the context of the word there. And then that verse ends with, uh, but there's a sorrow according to the uh, world, and it leads to death. There's a regret that is according to the world, and it leads to death. One of the things that I've done just over the last four years as I've been both in re-engage rooms and regeneration rooms is I've just watched. I've watched people come through those doors for the first time. And there's a tinge of regret in all of them, in all of you, in all of me. When I came through the doors for the first time in 2015, there was regret. There was sorrow for what I had done. And over time, I just watched six months for re-engage, 12 months for regen. I've just watched every time people come in the same place, just the song we sang. There were tears of mourning in everyone's eyes. And yet over time, they split into two groups. The first group comes in broken. And yet something happens over time. They turn their brokenness, they turn their tears over to God. It's a godly sorrow. And all of a sudden, repentance begins to, to come out of their life. And, and, and they leave the doors six months or nine months or a year later in a completely different place than when they began. And it's one of the great joys of my life is to watch repentance take hold of someone's life. And I get to marvel at it. And then there's the other group that came in in a, what seemingly seemed like a similar place, tears brokenness and yet sometimes and actually a lot of times they leave six months nine months a year later in a sometimes even a worse place than when they began there was sorrow and it wasn't handed over to the lord and it just produced further guilt and shame and so all that tonight is and all that you have on your your chairs that's just my notes that i've taken over the first two years, and then I've kept adding to it. I'm not going to go over the back side tonight. What I really want to emphasize tonight is repentance. It says in Matthew 3, 8 and Acts 26, 20 that uh, repentance is, bears fruit. The admonition in those parts of Scripture is to keep bearing fruit in keeping with repentance, which is just a way of saying is repentance gives evidence to itself. Over time, people come in and just go, hey, what's going to happen to my friend that just come up? I don't know. Come find me in a year and I'll tell you, right? Because repentance will bear fruit or unrepentance will have a lack of fruit. 
And so I, all I've done is kind of take notes and watch. The backside is stuff that typically happens, not always, but typically happens a little bit later in someone's journey. Tonight, I want to emphasize four things that you see um, that you can start to bear the fruit of repentance even tonight. Um, and so one of the ways that I want to do that as we kind of jump in to, to, to get this going is I want to investigate the life of David. Not, not shepherd boy David, not giant slayer David, but King David. And specifically, uh, David after his affair with Bathsheba. I want to look at um, how he responded and how he began to hand his sorrow over to the Lord and that it would produce repentance without, to, without regret. And it led to him becoming more and more like God. And so uh, we're going to be in Psalm 51 tonight, but I want to set up the story as it shows up in 2 Samuel 11 and 12, just as quick of a backstory as I can on David. Um, David was the second king of Israel. You all know that Israel was God's chosen people. God wanted to specifically use Israel to bless all the nations of the world, not just Israel. Israel, somewhere along the way, God was supposed to be their king. They rejected him and they demanded a king for themselves, so God gave them Saul, but he was really the people's king. God bes- um, had David next in line because he was going to be God's king for Israel. David had, David's life was marked by a decent amount of faithfulness, but uh, there comes a point in 2 Samuel 11 when, when David was supposed to be at battle with his men, and meanwhile he stayed back. And we know that uh, he began to um, look where he wasn't supposed to look, and he sees Uh, Bathsheba across the way and he takes something that was not his has an affair with Bathsheba and um, and a child is conceived and yet uh, there's repentance doesn't kick in for David instead it's just regret it's sorrow and so um, he covers up that's what regret does is they covers up the sin and in order to cover up the sin, um, he has Uriah killed in battle. In order to do that, um, he, has, he tells the people on the front lines to back off as they're going in so that Uriah would die. The problem with it, and the problem with all sin, right, is it only increases. We can't prepare ourselves for the consequences. And other people follow Uriah into battle. Many mighty men, it says. And there was grave, grand consequences for David's sin. David was fortunate because in 2 Samuel 12, he had a faithful prophet in his life come to him. And so I'm going to start in 2 Samuel 12. It says, then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said, and he's going to tell a story, a parable of what has just happened in David's life with Uriah and Bathsheba. It says, there were two men in one city, the one rich, that's David, and the other poor, that's Uriah. The rich men had a great many flocks and herds. But the poor man had nothing except one little lamb, which he bought and nourished, he cared for it. And when it grew up together with him and his children, it's like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came along, came to the rich man, came to David, and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd. Rather, he took the poor man's lamb, took Uriah's wife, and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger burned greatly against the man, and he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, surely this man deserves to die. Plus, he must go on to make restitution. And then Nathan looked at him and said, you are that man. 
The first thing that I just want you to even begin tonight is that uh, regretful hearts listen to themselves, but repentant hearts listen to godly people. In verse 13, Nathan, after he's listened to Nathan, um, David, after he's listened to Nathan for even longer, agrees with Nathan and said, yes, I've sinned against the Lord. David is beginning to listen to godly counsel in his life. As as gently as I can say this, sin makes us stupid. (laughs) It's as gentle as I can make it, sorry. And our heads get foggy. Sin produces a fog in our life that it's hard for us to sort through. And sometimes um, either we begin to come through the re-engaged doors because we're ready to start working on ourselves or maybe we're still stuck in the fog of sin. But uh, even as we begin to work on ourselves, sometimes the fog lifts a little bit. And, and over time, we begin to think that uh, we're thinking clearly when really all that's happening is that we're thinking a little bit clearer. And so we begin to listen to ourselves again. But repentant hearts know that they're not thinking clearly yet. And so they're willing to listen to their leaders. David listened to Nathan and it would course correct the last few years of his life. You guys have great leaders in here. Listen to them. The thoughts that are running through your head, they're running through your heart. If if you're convinced they're true, well then run it by your leaders. Test it by the counsel of godly people who've been walking with the Lord, have been abiding in his word, test it with them. Yes, and go to scripture, but don't just trust your own feelings. That's what, that's what regretful hearts do. Proverbs 19.20 says, listen to counsel and accept discipline so that you may be wise the rest of your days. It's all over the Proverbs, right? Instruct the wise and they will become wiser still. Even if you've been the fool, just accept the discipline, receive it, trust the counsel and walk with it. It's what repentant hearts do. It's what David did. And from it, because he was willing to listen to Nathan, he, he wrote Psalm 51, which is uh, for people like me, great sinners. It is a psalm that has... Uh, nurtured my faith and just helped me for so much of my life. I'm so grateful that David listened because Psalm 51 is one of the results that he wrote. We're not gonna go through the entire Psalm. I wish I could. There's so much truth. If you wanna see all some of my thoughts on it, you can flip onto the backside. But David starts in Psalm 51, verse one. It says, be gracious to me, O God, according to your Loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me, key word right here, thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Regretful hearts live in half-truths and partial confessions. Repentant hearts fully confess, thoroughly confess so that they may be thoroughly cleansed, so that they may be fully cleansed. To a regretful heart, an 80% confession is more than enough. Definitely a 90% confession or a 95% confession. Even a 99.5% confession seems way more than enough. But I'm telling you, trust me. 
even that 0.5% that you don't confess, that 10% you don't confess, it becomes the next 100%. And why you stay silent about your sin, David writes in Psalm 32, whether it's 100% of it or 0.5% of it, your bones will waste away. Test this by God's word, but in, 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 there's a formula, I think, when it comes to confession. Even a 99.5% confession will get you 0% freedom. And yet a 100.00% confession gets you a 100% freedom. It's all or nothing when it comes to the freedom thing. And so that's why David's like, wash me thoroughly, cleanse me, help me see all of it. Because it's a full confession that the Lord desires. It's a full confession that produces the freedom that you long for. Partial confession has devastating consequences. Progressive confession has devastating confessions, devastating consequences. And so if you're stuck in a partial or a progressive confession, I'm gonna encourage you tonight. Tonight's the night. Get it all on the table. Because unconfessed sin has deadly consequences. Sin has the power to kill you. Secrets have the power to kill you. See Psalm 32, three. See Psalm 38. It talks about this stuff has a way of robbing the life, even the light out of our eyes. David knew about it. He wrote about it all over Psalm 32, Psalm 38. Regretful hearts live in half-truths and partial confessions. Repentant hearts fully confess. Your leaders, you probably hear this consistently if you have confessed. Is there anything else? Is there anything else? That's the stone I want to put in your shoe. Ask your spouse. Spouses, ask one another. Is there anything else? Get it all out there tonight. Third thing. Psalm 51, 7, verse, verse 7 and 9. It says, purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Regretful hearts point out the fault of others. Repentant hearts draw the circle around themselves. You heard that? <laughs> if it's your first night here, welcome. You're gonna hear that phrase a lot. If it's your 10th night, you've probably heard it at least 10 times. And this is what David's doing. This is about me. Purify me with hyssop. Not Bathsheba right now. And I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. I've got to deal with the sin that's in my life right here, right now. David doesn't blame Uriah. He doesn't blame Bathsheba. He doesn't blame the people of Israel. He looks right at himself. He doesn't even blame Nathan. He receives it and goes, I've got work to do right here. And I want to encourage you. Trust us. We've been in these rooms before. We know that uh, marital problems are caused by two people, not one. Trust us that we're smart enough to know that your spouse has a piece of the, of the problem on their side too. Trust us. So trust the hus trust the, the, the male leaders to kind of pour in uniquely to, to your husbands. And, and husbands, trust some of the female leaders here to pour in to your wives. Trust us, we've seen some of this. And even as we push in on you, we know that your spouse has a piece of this and we're not trying to ignore their piece. We're trying to help get you to draw the circle around yourself. And you don't need to defend yourself. 
Matthew eleven nineteen. As as the Pharisees came at Jesus, Jesus just goes, "Look, wisdom is always vindicated by her deeds. Watch my life; it will speak for itself. So I don't need to come out flying with accusations. I'm not going to talk with big flowery words. I'm just going to let my life do the speaking, and I'm going to trust that God's going to work in my spouse's life. I just need to make sure He's working in mine." David did a great job modeling that. I'll just say this, one last little note. It is a clear sign of an unrepentant heart, of a regretful heart, is when you point the finger at someone else. It's a clear sign. You just give away for us that you're regretful, that you're struggling with repentance in this area. And it's okay. We're gonna sit with you. We're gonna work with you. We're not mad at you. But I'm just telling you, that's what it looks like, right? Godly people listen to others and they they stay in their circle. Psalm 51.10, I wish I could go through this whole thing. But it says this, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. There's a steadfastness that David longs for. He knows that this isn't something that just will go away overnight, but that he needs to be steadfast from here on out, that he needs to stay obedient to the word, and it won't be easy. He's got to be steadfast. Regretful hearts hope time heals all wounds. Repentant hearts know that that equation is incomplete. The story that always comes up in my mind is, a, is me with a, a professor from um, my college. I was in the accounting program at, at Baylor, and uh, there was a professor there that took me under his wing. He, he taught some of the uh, upperclassmen um, level classes, but uh, for whatever reason, he just kind of uniquely picked me out my freshman year and helped me find my footing at Baylor. And uh, My sophomore year just kind of helped me get acquainted with the accounting program. My junior year, he helped me get my first interview for an internship that would attempt, and then my senior year, he helped me um, get my first job. He was a dear professor that helped me adjust so well to the campus. We would just, from time to time, probably at least twice a month, I'd sit in his office and we'd just talk about, how are you doing? And I get to just open up and share with him my struggles and my successes. And it's like having a father right there on campus. Somewhere along the way, a a wedge entered our relationship that uh, he did not know about. I was... uh, I, I, I just flat out missed something. I, don't, I can't, At this point, I can't even remember what it was. It was either a test or some event that I was supposed to be at, and it was such a major miss that I had people come running up to me going, where were you? And in a moment, I panicked. And in a moment, they were like, where were you? Where were you? And, and like, bad lie alert. I just said, I, I, my dad had a heart attack. It's a bad lie. Unless it's true. It wasn't in this case. And uh, word got back to my professor that uh, my dad had had a heart attack. And what I haven't told you yet is they were best friends. So my professor sends my dad flowers and my dad calls me. <laughs> says, why am I getting flowers from our friend? Why does it say get well soon? We're praying for you. And so uh, in a moment that still brought a ton of shame in my life, I was able to clean up the mess with my dad and tell him what happened, but I did so in a way that I never went back to my professor to clean it up. 
And so for the next 20 some odd years, there was a wedge in the relationship between me and my professor of my own doing that I knew about and he didn't. And let me just tell you, time did not heal that wound. I waited 20 years to forget about it. I waited 20 years that maybe enough time would pass that I would be okay with it. I would see him once or twice a year, different homecomings and sporting events. And every time I'd see him, I'd be like, oh, there he is. And then I go, and then I'm like, but he doesn't know what he needs to know about what I've done. A few years ago, I went through regeneration and uh, his name came up, inventory, someone that I had caused harm to. And um, that program encourages you, right, to go back and seek forgiveness and make amends. And so about three years ago, I went and met with my professor and just told him what I just told y'all. And uh, because he's a good man, uh, or ironic man, he kind of laughed at first and, and said, uh, well, good, kind of with a smile on his face. That means your dad didn't have a heart attack. Yeah, that's good. And then because he loves Jesus, he looked at me and just goes, Jeff, be free. I forgive you. You've held on to this for way too long. Be free. And then we talked. Like I've been wanting to do for 20 some odd years, we talked and we sat and I recapped him on my life, told him about the five kids we have. Time never healed that wound. Time plus a steadfast spirit, one that was willing to go seek forgiveness, be obedient to the word and make amends, faithfulness and obedience. Those are some of the ingredients that help heal wounds. Time in and of itself heals nothing. It's a steadfast spirit that goes, that heals wounds. Regretful hearts love to say, in enough enough, haven't I paid my penance? It's been three months, it's been six months, let me off. Repentant hearts ask, will you remind me how my sin wounded you? And then they listen. They don't defend themselves, they listen. And then with a steadfast spirit, they get about the work of letting wisdom speak for itself, letting deeds speak for themselves. That's what repentant hearts do. There's a lot I would love to share. There's more notes on the back if those bless you. I think the idea of regretful heart and repentant hearts are never as, as clear in God's word than the night that Jesus was betrayed. There were two men that betrayed Christ that night. The first was Judas. He Betrayed Christ, ran off into the night. Scripture says he felt remorse. And yet he did not hand that over to the Lord. It was a worldly remorse. It was a worldly regret. And it did lead to death. For he gave up on life and he hung himself. There was another uh, man that night that betrayed Christ. You know him as Peter. And he too betrayed he too ran off into the night. 
he too wept and felt much sorrow. But this was a sorrow that he was willing to hand over to God. It was a godly sorrow that produced repentance, a repentance without regret, and it would sanctify the brother. Because he wouldn't give up on life, he was willing to then give his life away for the church and for Christ. That's what repentant hearts do. They get after the business of listening to godly counsel. They draw the circle around themselves. They fully confess so that they might be fully cleansed and they know that it's time plus a steadfast spirit that begins to heal the wounds that they have caused. Man, welcome to re-engage. If this is your first time here and you've caused a lot of wounds, I just want to tell you there's still hope for you. Repentance is this very powerful thing that if you will hand your sorrow over to the Lord, he will produce something you can't imagine in your life. And everyone in your life, including your spouse, will begin to marvel at what the Lord does. And if it's your 50th time and you're stuck and you're not sure why, here's some areas where you might be stuck. I'm still struggling with a lot of this stuff that you see before. There's places in my life where I have not let repentance bear the fruit that it's supposed to bear. And so let's all of us draw the circle around ourselves tonight and see where we have ground to take. Let me pray we do that. Father, we, uh, uh, we're prone to wander. We're prone to um, hard-heartedness. We're prone to feel much sorrow for what we've done and yet we're prone to just hand that over to the world and to our flesh or maybe even to the enemy and it just spirals us further and further out of control and so we're begging, we're asking, we're praying for your help tonight to come and intercept that sorrow and let us hand it over to you so that it might produce repentance. Lord, it's gonna take a work of you doing that in our lives but we don't wanna get in the way of it. So will you help us grow in whatever areas that we're stuck and that we're having trouble seeing? Will you help us trust the counsel of the leaders that you put in our lives? Will you help us to live honest, authentic, fully, thoroughly confessed lives? Will you help us just trust in your ways that uh, our lives will speak for themselves if we would just be obedient to your word? And Lord, we need you to do all of these things. I pray for this, for myself. I pray that for my friends tonight. Lord, get to the business of healing marriages, but let's remind ourselves that we've got to first work on ourselves. And so help us, Lord. We love you. We thank you for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.